<clears throat> wow. I should have been wearing green, I guess. I forgot. Uh, we're going to start the book of Acts uh, for the next 12 weeks. Uh, so we're, as Marty said, we're done with Revelation. Last week, uh, I was asked to uh, preach a gospel message for a, a group called Hunter's Return. Pollock Pines Community Church is just north of Placerville. And for the last 48 consecutive years, they've had an annual outreach to hunters. And so it's a wild game feed. And we had snow geese and... Uh, venison and elk and they'll do possum they'll do coon what they'll do whatever they can find and it's really a lot of these guys will never ever come to a church but they'll come to a wild game feed in a church so about 75 to 80 percent of them come to church once a year and it's not on christmas it's not on easter it's for hunter's return banquet and the whole point was to present the gospel so that's what we did on saturday night and then i preached for the church on sunday morning so that's where i was thanks for being patient and let's dive into acts it's good to see you all um, Acts of the Apostles is the title of the book. It comes after the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Uh, actually, it's not a comprehensive of all of the Acts of the Apostles. It records some of the Acts of some of the Apostles, mostly Peter and Paul. It could have easily been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, since the Holy Spirit's the central character, or the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ, or the Road to Rome, because it really is about the spread of the Gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. The human author of this book is Luke, the, the um, author who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke is thought to be of Antioch, from Antioch of Syria, just north of uh, Israel. The name Luke is a, is a Greek name derived from the Latin, from, it's either Lucanus, Lucianus, or Lucius. The Anglicized version, if you will, is Luke. Uh, he was a physician by profession and training. Uh, obviously, when you read the book of Luke and volume number two, the book of Acts, you understand that he was very, very competent in Greek composition. The guy was a superb uh, author, writer, uh, did extensive research, compiled, organized, and wrote a very orderly um, recounting of events. Uh, the superb historian. Uh, Luke is a, quite a guy. He traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey, became a lifelong friend of Paul. Um, when Demas forsook Paul and Paul was imprisoned, he said on more than one occasion, only Luke is with me. Everyone else was either ministering elsewhere or had forsaken him, but Luke was Paul's faithful, faithful friend. He was also his personal physician, which was a good thing. When you read Paul's history, you realize he got physically beat up, stoned, literally beaten with rods so many times. He needed the personal physician on staff to literally patch him up after each time, so God had arranged that as well. Luke was probably written, uh, the book of Acts was written by Luke, probably from the city of Rome, about 62 to 63 AD. When we get to the end of the book of Acts, it ends at the end of Paul's house arrest in Rome. Paul was arrested, he was allowed visitors, but he had two year house arrest period in Rome and that's where it ends. The book of Acts doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It doesn't mention the beheading of Paul, probably about 64, 65. So the assumption is that this was probably written about the end of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, about 62 or 63 AD. Now, what's interesting is the Gospel of Luke and volume two of Luke's work, the book of Acts, make up over 25% of the volume of the New Testament. So if you just look at the New Testament and you add all the verses up, Luke and Acts together comprise more than one quarter of the whole New Testament. So rather interesting, it's the longest book in the New Testament. There's a 1,151 verses in the book of Luke. Matthew has 1,071 verses and the book of Acts has 1,003 verses. So one of the ways to determine God's priorities, if you want to understand what God's priorities, one of the interesting ways to do that is just to look in Scripture and evaluate how much ink God spills on a given topic. You know, if God puts a lot of ink to a given topic, you can make an assumption if it must be really important because God gives it a lot of time. Uh, most of the Gospels, interestingly enough, spend the vast majority of their time not on the three-year ministry, but on the last 60 to 90 days of Jesus' life, and most of that's Passion Week. So when you want to find out what God's values are or what he calls important, look at how much time he spends on. It's called the principle of proportion. More ink equals more importance. Less ink 
you know, it's all important, but God has priorities here. So God clearly has a lot to say to us through Luke. Acts was written by Luke primarily to document the irresistible, sovereignly directed progress of the gospel. When you look at this book, the progress of the gospel is irresistible. It's like a tidal wave. There's a lot of opposition, but it conquers. The gospel progresses geographically in this book from Jerusalem to Rome and everywhere in between. The gospel progresses in this, in this book from Israel to the church. Right? And the gospel progresses racially in this book from the Jews to the Gentiles. So the baton of the gospel is getting passed geographically, theologically, and racially in some phenomenally innovative ways. Acts really records the universality of the gospel. In this book, you will see the gospel go to the rich. You'll see the gospel go to the poor. You'll see the gospel go to the uneducated. You'll see the gospel go to the educated. You'll see the gospel go to men and women. You'll see the gospel go to the high and the humble. You'll see the gospel go to the Samaritan, the Ethiopian. You'll see the gospel go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So this book really shows Jesus Christ birthing his church, building his church, empowering his church to literally turn the world upside down. It also reveals, unfortunately, severe opposition to the gospel. In this book, you will see opposition to the gospel from the enemy on an ongoing basis, and you'll see how followers of Jesus in the first century responded to persecution, responded to death uh, for the cause of the gospel. One of the more interesting uh, observations about the book of Acts is it records the radical changes that took place in the lives of the apostles. You know, how many of you have ever seen before and after pictures of weight loss advertising on television? <clears throat> right, you know, there's the before shot and then there's the after shot and you think, it's just Photoshop. I mean, I swear to you, it's just Photoshop, right? Because you go from fat to firm, from older to younger, or even worse, in my opinion, is the, is the before and after shots of these pot-bellied men, you know, who are transformed into hard body muscle machines, right? You know? <laughs> And, and all you have to do is use our product, whatever our product is, and suddenly you can drop 20 years and 20 pounds and all this other stuff. So the, this before and after stuff on television is probably not as credible. When you read the history of the disciples of Jesus Christ, the before and after shots in their lives are truly transformative and remarkable. These disciples went from passive to passionate. They went from being fearful to being literally fearless. In the Gospels, you see them run away when Jesus was arrested. In Acts, you see them confront the same people that killed Jesus Christ head on with the truth. Phenomenal transformation. We'll see that throughout this book. Acts is also important because it's the historical bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record what Jesus did. Interestingly enough, the Gospel of Matthew ends with the resurrection. The Gospel of Mark ends with the ascension. The Gospel of Luke ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Gospel of John ends with the promise of the second coming. Acts brings all four of those together. They kind of funnel into the book of Acts and Acts really draws all those together. The Gospels end, when you read the four Gospels, they end, Jesus is gone, and there's a very, very small handful of very scared Christians with no worldwide impact at all. Acts ends with the church being spread around the world, all the way to Rome, and these churches are primarily Gentile, and they are making an impact on the Roman Empire. Acts tells us how you go from the Gospels to the epistles. If we didn't have the book of Acts, we wouldn't understand Paul's missionary journeys. We would read his epistles to Philippians and Ephesians and we would say that doesn't make any sense because we don't have the historical context. Acts gives us that historical context. Now the book of Acts is real easily divided into two main divisions. Chapters 2 through 12 record the Christian mission to the Jewish world, largely through the apostle Peter. So the first 12 chapters, from a human standpoint, Peter's the main character, and it's how the gospel mission goes to the Jewish world. Peter's the primary transmission mechanism through whom the Holy Spirit works. 
If you subdivide chapters 2 through 12, chapters 1 through 5 really are the ministry in Jerusalem. Chapters 6 through 12 really are the missionary activity in Judea and Samaria. And then we jump to the last half of the book, 13 to 28, really is about the Christian mission to the Gentile world. And Paul and his three missionary journeys is probably the primary actor for that period of time. Let's dive into chapter 1, verse 1. The first account, Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, for those of you who have read the Gospel of Luke, this sounds remarkably familiar. He opens the Gospel of Luke with almost the exact same words he opens the account in Acts. It was written to Theophilus. Now, Theo means God. A theocracy is ruled by God, right? I know some people who think their name should be Theo. They certainly behave like that. And philos is love or friend. So Theophilus is friend of God or lover of God. Interestingly enough, this was a Gentile name. It's a proper name of a person. And in Luke's gospel, it says most excellent Theophilus. Now, if you had the name most excellent, that was literally a title that was reserved for officials or nobility. So if you called somebody most excellent, that meant they had some sort of a role, an official role in the Roman hierarchy or nobility. So Theophilus, there's been a lot of debate about who this guy is. He may well have been the patron who financed Luke's writing of both the gospel and the book of Acts. You know, when you read this book, it's pretty clear that Luke must have done an enormous amount of research. He wasn't an eyewitness to anything of Jesus' ministry, but he records in vast detail everything that happened. So he must have interviewed an enormous number of people surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in order to write his book, books, I guess, volume one and volume two. So these two letters, Luke and Acts, are written to a very wealthy, influential Greek official named Theophilus. And you say, well, why would Luke write these two letters to this character named Theophilus? Well, First of all, Luke wants this gospel message to be disseminated, right? <clears throat> if you're going to get your message disseminated, where would you go? You go to someone who's got a position and the power and the wealth to be able to take that message to the world. Because Jesus had said, obviously, you go into all the world. Luke understood that. If you look at the gospel of Luke, <clears throat> the gospel of Luke covers about 33 years from the birth of Jesus until his death and his ascension, about a 33-year period. The book of Acts covers the time frame from the ascension to the end of Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome, from about 33 to 62. So the gospel, the gospel of Acts, about 30-year window. The, the book of Acts, about a 30-year window. So there's about a 60-year time horizon that's covered by these two volumes. This one, the book of Acts, begins about A.D. 33, ends about A.D. 62. Now, the Gospel of Luke, if you say, if you look here, the first account I composed, verse 1, that's the Gospel of Luke. It records what Jesus began to do and teach when he was in his human body on earth. The book of Acts records what Jesus continued to do and teach through his spiritual body, which is you. You are his spiritual body. And we, he has a spiritual body called the church for the last 2,000 years, and he is working through the church as his instrument at this point in time. Who is the chief character in the Gospels? The Gospels. Jesus. The chief character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit, working through the apostles to accomplish God's purpose. Verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, he being Jesus, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So the Gospel of Luke records what Jesus did until the ascension. Obviously, we're now talking post that. He uses the word apostles. Apostles comes from apostello. It means to send away, to send away. You know, when you want ice cream, you give your kid a buck and you apostolize them. You say, go get the ice cream and don't eat it on the way back. You're supposed to bring it for me, right? So literally, an apostle is anyone who is sent with a message, anyone who carries a message. In this case, the message is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. We are now, this whole book is about a baton pass. 
Have you ever watched the Olympics relay race? When you're running a relay race, the most critical part of any relay race is the baton pass. It's not the running, it's the handoff. And that's where mistakes occur in relay races is passing the baton. It's the most critical piece and it's the easiest part to mess up. Now here's rule number one. Don't drop the baton. Don't, especially on national television. Don't drop the baton because it's pretty obvious that the baton is not supposed to be on the ground, it's supposed to be in the hand, right? So don't drop the baton. Make sure it gets passed to the next runner. Now the baton here is the gospel and it's being passed from Jesus to his followers. And the only reason you are here and I am here is some generation before us did what? Pass the baton. You wouldn't be here if for 2,000 years there hadn't been a baton pass. Now you and I are entrusted with the gospel. We are entrusted with the gospel message and we are accountable to protect it and to pass it to the next generation, amen? That is one of your primary callings in this life is to pass that baton. Now Jesus is going back to heaven and the disciples are giving the baton of faith, the gospel message, and here's the shocking thing. It says the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. Underline that. Underline whom he had chosen. Here's the principle. God chooses ordinary people to accomplish his eternal plan. The question is not whether he is able. The question is, are you available? God chooses ordinary people to accomplish his eternal plan. And I'm looking at a room full of ordinary people. We are ordinary people. We drool when we sleep. We snore when we sleep. We have hair that goes on the side when we sleep. We're ordinary people, right? But God uses, chooses and uses ordinary people. So the question isn't whether he's able to use us. The question is, are we available to be used? Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you so we can have ice cream together. Is that what he said? He said, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. You have a job description and that your fruit should remain. So Jesus personally selected these apostles. What staggers me is they didn't, he didn't outsource this to an executive search firm. If you and I were doing an executive search to select candidates whose job description was to change the world, we would have rejected every single one of these characters. Their task is global. Here's the message. God and man can be reconciled forever and you can live forever in heaven. Eternal life. Beyond comprehension, it's a message that's designed to change the world. The task is unbelievable, and these apostles, from a human standpoint, are absolutely incapable. They're not wise people. They're not wealthy people. They're not powerful people. They're not connected people. They're not eloquent. They're not educated. They were social outcasts. They were the hayseeds from Hicksville. With the exception of Judas Iscariot, every single one of these apostles is from where? Galilee. Now, Galilee is far worse than being an oater. I'm serious. No, I'm serious. You, you think, you think, I mean, you can look at zip codes and go, whoa, you're from that zip code? Whoa, that's pretty tough. Wherever it happens to be. You know, in most towns, you're from the south side or the wrong side of the tracks. Being from Galilee was almost, when you were called a Galilean, that was almost an epithet. Because the Galileans were not just hayseeds, they were not just Hicksvilles, they couldn't even correctly pronounce words without dropping consonants and syllables. These 12 men, now there's 11, the only one that came from a respectable area, Judas Iscariot, he's dead, suicide. The 11 that are left, they're working class people. Seven of them fish for a living. They're not just the, not only the sharpest knife in the drawer, they've got a history with Jesus that's really, really spotty, right? You wouldn't have chosen these 12. Jesus tells them to do what? Stay awake and pray in the garden. And they fall asleep, right? Jesus tells them after the resurrection, go back to Galilee and wait for me. And they go back to Galilee. 
but they don't wait for him. They go back to their old business, fishing, because they figure he's not going to show up, so I'm going to go back to fishing. I don't know what else to do at that point. Jesus personally selected these 12. He's not depending on their skills. He's not depending on their connections. He's not depending on their education, their looks, their eloquence, or anything else. Jesus is depending on what he is going to do in them and through them, and the same is with us today. You know, when you look in the mirror, you should not be surprised that you're ordinary. What should surprise you is that God has chosen you and appointed you to carry his eternal message to the lost. You have a job description because you were saved for a purpose. Number one, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then number two, while you're here, you have work to do. We don't doubt his ability. What I really want to ask you to think about today, this application question, are you available? Are you available? I'm always intrigued by folks who I think should know better who God becomes one of the options on their list. He's not even the head of the to-do list. If it's if I have time, I'll do it list. Right? You know, that's not going to sell well when you get to heaven. Well, Lord, you know, there were just a lot of other things I had going on that were more important than you were. Really? Don't get seduced by this world. The stuff of this life is gone quick. Very quick. Ask yourself, Lord, how available am I? You're able, am I available? Application question, verse 3. To these whom he had chosen, these 12, these 11 now, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He said, it says proofs. Proof is incontrovertible evidence. It's beyond dispute evidence. It's demonstrable evidence. It is not hearsay, and it's not testimony from someone who wasn't there. Remember, Jesus is resurrected. He spends 40 days with his followers prior to the ascension. 40-day period. During that period of time, multiple people not only saw Jesus multiple times, multiple people touched him, conversed with him, shared meals with him, handled him, right? He told the disciples, yeah, I'm not a spirit. I'll eat fish in front of you so they can actually see. He told Thomas what? Put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Touch me. I'm real, right? Believe. This is not an illusion. This is demonstrable historical fact. The resurrection is beyond dispute at that point. Now, there's a 40-day window between the resurrection and the ascension, which is interesting because Jesus experienced how many days of temptation before his public ministry? 40 days. God instructed Moses on Mount Sinai how many days? Before Israel's mission to the world, 40 days. Now Jesus instructs his disciples for 40 days before their mission to the world begins. Have you ever wondered what he talked about? You know, it, you, you talk about a cram course, right? You've got a mission to the world, and I'm going to teach you how to do it in 40 days. I've already spent three years with you, but this is going to be kind of the fine-tuning, because you're not going to see my face until you come to glory at this point. Do you think any of them took notes? Do you think? Do you know what amazes me? We have a pastor, pastors, who I love dearly. And they put hours, 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 and prayerful hours and sweat and blood and tears into prepping messages for us, food, nutrition. 90% of the people sitting in those pews won't even take a pen out. I don't get that. This is life. This is truth. This is reality. I don't know how your brain works, but if I don't write it down, I don't remember it. Right? That's just reality. If it's important, write it down. Write it down, right? I bet they took notes. I don't know how much they could write, but I'll bet you. So it doesn't say how many times Jesus appeared to them. 
It doesn't say it was on a predictable calendar. If we look, Jesus showed up when he was ready. Talked to them, and when he was done, he disappeared. I'll bet for 40 days they were paying attention. I wonder if he's going to come now. I wonder if he's going to come now, right? When he comes, he comes. God is God. It was enough times to teach them what he wanted them to know. Verse 4. One of the times he was together, he gathered them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. Verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days to now. from now. Now he says, gathered them together. It's literally a Greek phrase that means to eat salt together. Now when you ate salt together, that was a, a vernacular for they had a meal. They shared a meal. So this particular conversation, Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. That took place over a meal. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait in Jerusalem. Why would he say that? Because they have a history of being flaky. Right? They've got a history of leaving. They've got a history of being impatient. Right? Jesus has done all these miracles. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Be patient. Pray. Wait. Blah, blah, blah. They fall asleep. Peter shows up, cuts off the slave of the high priest's ear, just whacked it off. You know, if he wouldn't have ducked, it probably could have taken his head off at that point. Not really good self-control, right? So Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem. In Luke 24, 49, Luke reiterates what he's saying here, and he quotes Jesus, and he says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here's the principle. Waiting on God is actively seeking His will and trusting His word. Waiting on God is actively seeking His will and trusting His word. Waiting is preparation, and waiting on the Lord is not passive, it is very active. It has the idea of actively seeking, passionately praying, expectantly studying the scriptures to better understand the mind of God. Now, waiting on the Lord does not help God hurry up and meet our timeline. Just in case you're wondering, you know, if I wait on the Lord, then he'll get off the dime and do what I want to do when I no, it doesn't. It's not the point. You're not waiting for him because God will do everything in his perfect timeline. Waiting prepares us for his will and his timing and his plan. You know why we hate to wait? Because waiting implies that someone else is in control, not you. You know, when you wait for a loved one to get ready, who's in charge? It's not the one who's doing the waiting, just in case you were wondering, okay? See, we don't want people, we don't want to wait for people, we want people to wait for us, right? Everybody should wait for us, but we don't want to wait for people. We want to be large and in charge, we want to be in control. Furthermore, we don't like to wait because we believe that the only way you make progress is with activity. Don't just sit there, do something. Even if it's something stupid, do something, right? We believe that busy is holy and waiting is lazy. Ooh, ooh, did I say that? See, I believe that. This is convicting to Brad because I, my mother had a very strong pitchfork and she'd put it all the way up my spinal column and say, get off your backside and da-da-da-da, do blah-blah-blah-blah. You know, you do the work. That's part of the Dutch. You know, the old line is, you can always tell a Dutch, but you can't tell them much. That was us. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't sit there, do something, even if it's going backwards. Here's, the, here's what God says. Your activity without my power and without my time will never accomplish my purposes. We humans, we're going to be large and in charge. We're going to put effort and energy into it, and we think it's going to accomplish something. The reality is when God says wait, he means wait. Now, it doesn't mean you go to sleep. It means wait. We need to learn that God's time is not our time. God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts aren't God's thoughts. Moses learned what God wanted to teach him by waiting how long in the desert? How long was he in the desert as a shepherd? How long? That's one-third of his life. Forty years. One-third of his life, squeezing sand between his toes as a shepherd. 
He had no idea that that was the preparation time for spending 40 years squeeze and stand between his toes with two million people behind him, called the Israelites. 40 years. David spent 13 years as a fugitive from King Saul, even though he had already been anointed king at age 12. He knew he was going to be king. It wasn't God's time. He had people all around him all the time saying, you've been anointed. Take Saul out. He's sleeping right there in the cave. Knock him off. I'll do it for you, as a matter of fact. You don't have to. You'll be untouched. I'll just stick a knife in his neck and you'll be king. David said, don't touch the Lord's anointed. I'm going to wait for God's time to make me king. Because it's not mine to take. It's God's to give. Right? Abraham and Sarah waited how long for God's promise of a son? How long? 40 years. No, it wasn't 40. 25. 25 years. Got the promise at 75. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 10 years younger. She got it at 65. She gave birth at 90. Man, I bet she had great skin when she gave birth. I kid you not. I think the biological process was probably reversed. I think they went backwards. I think they got younger biologically. They had to in order to have a baby. They waited 25 years. Have you ever waited 25 years? Now, waiting doesn't mean giving up. <clears throat> I've talked to people, go, well, I waited 25 years, and I'm saying, have you been praying for 25 years? Or have you just said, well, uh, give it up. You know, God's not going to do it. No, no, no. Waiting is not giving up on God. Waiting is believing that God's going to keep his promise without giving him a deadline to do it. Waiting is believing that God will keep his promises without giving him a deadline to do it. And we're really good at giving God deadlines. God, you said you would do blah, blah, blah. Now do it now. Because I'm in charge. No, no, no. God says, wait. Wait. Elijah was commanded to go to the brook Cherith. He got fed by ravens, unclean birds. He didn't know how long he was supposed to go there. Joseph spent 13 years as a slave, falsely included, imprisoned. Before, surprise, surprise, he was appointed prime minister. You know what all these characters had in common? Not one of them knew how long God wanted them to wait. They just waited. They believed God would keep his promises. And some of them didn't even know, what the, obviously, what the future held, let alone when. So the, 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 the issue here for us is waiting on God demonstrates that we believe that he's going to keep his word. And sometimes there is no promise. Joseph never got promised he was going to be prime minister. He had no idea. He knew he was in prison. He knew that he was simply to follow God, wait on God's timing. Whatever God had for him was whatever God had for him. He wasn't promised to be prime minister. Moses was never promised to lead the nation of Israel for those 40 years. He was a shepherd. He waited on God in the position he was and let God could be in charge of the future. Does that make sense? Waiting on God demonstrates that you believe his word, that you believe his character. Even, you know, you and I look at each other and we go, Brad, <clears throat> I have children and I have grandchildren and I have health issues and I have financial issues and I have concerns about the people I love, my job, my work, etc. And God hasn't promised me anything about, you know, someday you'll get a promotion. Someday your children will come back. Someday your grandchildren. There's no promises on that. What do I do? You don't look at your circumstances. You bring your circumstances to the sovereignty of God and you surrender them. You say, Lord, you have my children. What did we say two weeks ago? He's got the whole world in his hands and he's got my children in his hands and he's got my grandchildren, he's got my finances, he's got my health and he's got my outlaws and in-laws and ex-laws. Where? In his hands. That's what waiting on the Lord is. It says, Lord, you've got them in your hands and we want to take them back because we want to control the situation, right? Waiting is understanding who's sovereign. And the disciples... Have to wait. God didn't say, you only have to wait 50 days. He said, wait. The Spirit is coming. Wait. Now, if you want a good example about somebody who couldn't wait, all you need to look is at King Saul or Samson. Neither one of them had, could wait. Saul was commanded by Samuel, wait seven days. I'm going to offer sacrifice in seven days. Wait seven days. Now, Saul's under attack from the Philistines. The troops are deserting. He panics, and he decides to offer the sacrifice himself. As soon as he finished the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. Samuel said, what are you doing? Saul says, well, 
I, I got really nervous. My circumstances were really deteriorating, and I was afraid of the Philistines, and I forced myself to offer the sacrifice. Liar, liar. Cost him his crown. He wasn't willing to trust God. When God says wait, it doesn't mean sleep. It means watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. So when you're waiting, you're in the word. When you're waiting, you're in prayer. When, you were in the, when you're waiting, you're in fellowship. It's an active thing. Now, the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus told them to wait for was a fulfillment of multiple Old Testament promises. Just one of them is Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. For John baptized you with water. Now, the word baptized, baptismo here means immerse or dip. It has the idea of being surrounded by or engulfed with, but it also has the idea of uniting with. When you see the word baptism and uniting with, what's the central idea of marriage? The two shall become one, be united as one, become one flesh. At salvation, the believer is spiritually made one with Jesus Christ. We are adopted in Christ's family. We are one flesh with him, of which marriage is a picture. Verse 6. And so, when they had came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed with his own authority. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and in their most parts of the earth. Here's the principle. Our priority is the gospel. Nothing less and nothing else. And I know I'm hearing some of you go, what about my job? What about my family? Aren't those things priorities? The only reason you're on the planet is for the sake of the gospel. If you didn't have a job description to do with respect to the gospel, you would be in heaven. And when your job description with respect to the gospel is done, you're going to be in heaven, right? Until then, you're supposed to be about what? Your father's business. And I know the eating and the jobs and the finances and the family and friends, that's all important, no question about it. But it all serves the reason you're still here, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples, it's not for you to know. Does that bother you? I'm going, what do you mean it's not for me to know? Tell me. I'm a man, I can deal with it. Yeah, right. He says, it's not for you to know. The times are the epochs which the Father is fixed. Now, the word times here is chronos. It's where we get chronological time. It's the quantity of time. It's clock time, calendar time. When we see I get off work at 5 o'clock, I'll meet you for lunch next Wednesday, they're talking about chronological time. You know, you ran the 100-meter dash in, you know, nine blank seconds. That's chronological time. But there's also, he says, epochs. The Father, epochs is kairos. And it has to do with the quality of time. Event-based time. People say, we had a good time at your birthday party. I'm looking forward to spending some quality time with my family. Or they're going through hard times. So Jesus is saying, whether it's chronological time or whether it's age-based, event-based time, who's in charge of it? Who's in charge of it? God. The Father's in charge of it. He's basically telling the disciples very politely. You know what he's saying here? Mind your own business. Mind your own business. And you say, well, what's their business? Their business is the gospel. Their business is the ministry of the gospel. The divine timing about what God's going to do, when God's going to do it, what, when God's going to come back, what the timeline of God's activities is, is not the business of God's people. How many of you know people that spend their entire lives trying to figure out what God's going to do in advance? Well, I've added all these dates together, and I think he's coming back in 1988. There was a book written, 88 Reasons Why God's Coming Back. Jesus is coming back in 1988. Harold Camping spent an enormous amount of time and a lot of years of his life trying to predict God was gonna, Jesus was going to come back in 1994, and then 96, and then 98, and, you know, 2010. And, you know, don't waste your time with stuff that's not your priority. Jesus saying is, you be about the business I'm telling you. The Father is going to fix his own authority. The Father has his own authority. It's his own power. And he's the one who's in charge of that. God is God. You are not. Stay focused on what I've called you to do, which is the ministry of the gospel. Amen?
Now, the word Luke uses for power in verse 8, but you shall receive power. The word is dunamis. Dunamis is where we get the word dynamite. And it literally refers to derived power. It, rever it, it, it re refers to conveyed power or power that is given to us by another. Verse 8, but you shall receive power. Underline the word receive. Is it your power? Is it? Okay. Do we get that confused? It doesn't say you've got your own power. It doesn't say Jesus, Jesus says, I'm trusting in your power to accomplish my work. It says you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then in that power, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, even the most part of the earth. So this is the key verse of Acts. This is the theme of this book. This is really the organizing principle and the outline of this book. The person is Jesus Christ. The power is the Holy Spirit. And the program is worldwide witness. It's evangelism, missions. It's all about Jesus. You can't do the work of the ministry without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the program is the entire world being presented with the gospel so that they can live forever in heaven together. This is a statement of fact, and it's also a command. You shall receive power, and you shall be my witnesses. All right? Here's the principle. Doing God's work is completely dependent on God's power, not my power. And every one of you looks at that and goes, uh-huh, 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 yeah, makes sense to me. And then we go out and we do what? We act in our power. You know how I know we act in our power? Because I act in my power all the time. Do you know what a good measuring department is? The number of things in my life that I'm willing to do without praying about them indicates how much I'm trusting in my power. If, I'm not, if I don't pray about it, what's the assumption? I guess I don't need God's help on this one. Really? What are the things in your life you don't need God's help with? See, I'm, I'm reasonably convinced that most of us will intellectually agree with this. Yep, it's completely dependent on God's power. And we behave in ways that obviously indicates we're trusting our power. John 15, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He gives them the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And he says, if you cut the branch off from the vine, what happens to the branch? It dries up and dies. It can't bear any fruit. And he says, apart from me, separated from me, you can do. Do we really believe that? Your job primarily is not to bear fruit. Your job is to stay connected to the vine. If you're connected to the vine, God will bear the fruit through you. God will bear the fruit through you. We get focused on fruit. God, I need to go do blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. You need to stay connected with the vine and he will bear the fruit. That's part of the, I need to go do something. Well, the primary job you have is stay connected with the vine. That's waiting. That's submission. See, what Jesus promised here is supernatural power. The Holy Spirit is supernatural power. The purpose of the Holy Spirit power was not for personal gain, not for selfish gain, but to fulfill Christ's command to be witnesses. The word witnesses is used 29 times in the book of Acts. 29 times. Now, when God repeats something, he didn't forget it. He's repeating it for emphasis. So being a witness is a critical piece of the book of Acts. A witness is someone who tells accurately what they've seen and heard. You know, how many of you, you ever been, any of you ever been called to be a witness in court of law? Anybody? Nobody? I've got a few people. Okay. I was called about 30 years ago to be a witness in a divorce case. <clears throat> you do not want to be called to be a witness in a divorce case. <laughs> you see human nature on display. Go to family law court and you see human nature on display. You, you go to family law court and you understand why people need Jesus. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? The brokenness is just almost indescribable. But a witness in a court of law does not render a legal opinion. The judge was not interested in my opinion. The judge wanted to know, tell me what you know, tell me what you saw, tell me what you experienced. Shut up. That's all I need to know. The rest of it, I'll deal with. Put together. 
So witnesses tell people who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. That's what a witness does. A witness tells your story, right? What has Jesus done in my world? That's what a witness does. It's testimony, right? Not everyone has the gift of evangelism, but everyone is called to be a witness because every one of you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ has done some things in your life, yes? yes. And you testify to that. That's what a witness is. It's not your job to persuade them to follow Jesus. Pastor Rogers said, for the 15 years I've been here, if I can talk you into it, somebody can talk you out of it. That's not your job. Your job is to be a witness, tell them what Jesus has done in your life, and who wears the power source to convert them, to convict them, to bring them to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Don't get our job descriptions confused. One of the things I'm very convicted of I need to spend far more talking, far more time talking with Jesus about people than I do spend time talking to people about Jesus. I need to spend more time talking with Jesus about people, which means before I go open my mouth, I need to be much in prayer for those people and God's timing and God's purpose, etc. So I'm paying attention to what his plan is. And if you have children and grandchildren, you understand the fine art of keeping your mouth shut. How many of you have thought things with your children and grandchildren that you have not said? <laughs> That's probably the way it should be. 99% of what I think should be relegated to prayer. God, here's my heart. Here's what I'm thinking. I need to spend more time talking with him and less time telling somebody else. Not that you shouldn't tell him, a witness tells, but priorities first. Verse 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So this is obviously the record of Jesus' ascension. Now, it says the apostles had witnessed that ascension. They're reliable witnesses. They were eyewitnesses. And Jesus had to leave before the Holy Spirit could come. Now, the Holy Spirit is the power source behind everything that takes place in Acts. Next week, we're going to spend some time, a fair amount of time, matter of fact, in chapter 2, you can read ahead, on what it means to be filled with the Spirit, what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Two very different things. And I realize that there's a very broad theological controversy over a second filling of the Spirit or whether you're filled at the moment of salvation, etc., and we're going to do a very a good, solid, biblical, exegetical study, Lord willing, next week and talk about that. But the power source is not ours. The power source is the Holy Spirit, and he's come and lived with us. It's actually staggering when you think that God himself lives inside you. And you have to look and say, well, then how come I'm not as effective as I should be if God's God? It has nothing to do with his power. It has to do with our availability, not his ability, Right? So these apostles are witnesses. They saw Jesus going to heaven and Jesus told them, he said, verse 7 of John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I go back to heaven, I will send him to you. See, Jesus, when he was in the flesh, how many people could he touch at a time? Yeah, it, we'd have a real logistical problem, right? If Jesus was still in the flesh today... I mean, how long would the waiting list be to see him? You know, I mean, well, 63 years from now, you have an appointment with Jesus because you can see one person at a time. The beauty of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian 100% of the time. If you're a Christian, you can't lose the Holy Spirit, right? You can't lose him. He's there. If you're a Christian, he has taken up residence. Now, you can disobey him. You can ignore him. You can not pay attention but you can't lose him. We're going to talk about that next week as well. So it was very advantageous that Jesus went away and sent the Spirit because we all now have instant access because he lives in us. Verse 10. The disciples are gazing intently into the sky when Jesus is departing. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So in Luke's gospel, the ascension is the end of the story. It's the end of Christ's ministry while on earth. In Luke volume 2, 
which is the book of Acts, the ascension is the beginning of the story of his body, of the church. Next week we'll talk about the birth of the church and what that means. So Jesus' second coming, we talked about this the last eight months in Revelation. Jesus' second coming is going to end your and my opportunity to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Your ability to fulfill the Great Commission has a timeline on it, right? And Christians talk to me and they say, well, someday I'll get around to it. Someday you won't be here. Someday the opportunity to tell the people you love about Jesus Christ and his love will end. And it may not end when you're ready for it to end. I have a friend of mine who's got a paralyzed vocal cord. Now that would not be a way that I would think would end your ministry, but it could, right? Some of us in this room are going to wind up with early onset Alzheimer's. I think some of you may already be there, right? When I look at myself, I think, if the deterioration continues at this pace, right, I better get on with it, right? Because the effectiveness is not going to be there forever. That's just part of the reality. So part of this is when Jesus Christ comes back, yes, it's going to be joy. Yes, it's going to be consummation. Yes, the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. But the opportunity for the gospel ends. So let's be about our Father's business today. All right, summary. And then, Tom, if you're doing prayer requests, if you could start collecting clipboards and whatever else and start moving up here. Here's principle number one. God chooses ordinary people to accomplish his eternal plan. Lots of ordinary people. The question is not whether God is able. The question is, are you available? Number two, waiting on God is actively seeking his will and trusting his word. It's not passive. It's active. Number three, our priority is the gospel. Nothing less and nothing else. So disregard distractions. That takes daily effort. And number four, doing God's work is completely dependent upon God's power, not my power. You know who wants you to trust your power? Satan desperately wants you to trust your power because then you will fail and fail and fail and become frustrated and guilt-ridden and you will see no fruit and you're going, I'm ineffective. And the Lord says, of course. Because it's a spiritual issue, it requires supernatural power and I've given you that in the Holy Spirit. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the birth of the church, the coming of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit today, and what we need to be doing in light of that. Okay? I love you guys. Now that you know, do.